Good morning. How you doing? Great. And I want to welcome those of you who are watching online. My name is Luke. And as Jeremy said, we moved out here in 2002 really to be part of this church. Uh, we were not working here initially. We, uh, my wife Molly and I both got jobs doing other stuff, but we just knew that God was doing something here, that there was a commitment to training leaders and that sort of a thing. And I remember actually we moved out here before we had ever attended a service, which is dumb. That's a dumb idea, right? I remember actually sitting out in the parking lot and being like, I hope we like this. Like, we literally just unpacked our moving truck yesterday, so we're stuck, but I hope we like this. And, uh, and we did like it, and uh, we just were so blessed. And, and obviously, this congregation has changed and developed over the years, but one thing that hasn't changed is uh, the commitment to a big God, a God who's sovereign and good in Jesus. And another thing that hasn't changed is my affection for you and for this church. And so I bring you greetings from Redemption Gateway. Uh, we have been praying for you and we're encouraged by you and uh, we're glad that we're in this family together. And I don't know what part of the family we are at Gateway. Maybe we're the cool aunt or maybe we're the weird uncle. But whatever we are, we're family and you're stuck with us. So, um, but I bring you greetings. Um, we're gonna um, dive into a passage here at the end of John chapter six. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and begin to turn there. John chapter six, beginning in verse 60 is where we'll be. And this is a passage that's especially meaningful to me personally. This was the text that God used to bring me to faith in Jesus. And so I'm really excited to be able to preach it and to be able to uh, help you hopefully see some of what uh, God allowed me to see uh, years ago through this passage. So uh, I want to read uh, together John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. I'll read it. You can follow along if you have your Bible there. Uh, and remember, as we read, we're reading God's Word. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. May this word of the Lord help us to see and savor Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we invite your spirit now to give life. Jesus, you said it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And so we pray that you would grant it to us even now as we unpack your word, to be drawn to the Father. Would we experience your goodness, your sweetness, and would you use this text to touch our hearts, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, the big idea today is that Jesus is hard to follow, but he's our only hope. Jesus is hard to follow, 
but he's our only hope. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is hard to follow. Uh, If you have your Bible there, uh, Jesus has done quite a bit in chapter 6. We're wrapping up what Jesus has done in chapter 6, but at the beginning of it, uh, you have the miracle recorded where Jesus, uh, taking just a few uh, fish and loaves, multiplied that to feed um, thousands of people, maybe 10, 12, 15,000 people, this huge multitude of people with lots of leftovers uh, were fed based on what Jesus did. And then he walks across the water to his disciples, and then uh, the crowd follows him to the other side because they're like, hey, this guy can make bread. We got to follow this guy. (laughs) And so Jesus begins to teach them, and as Jesus teaches through chapter 6, one of the things you see is that people start to really have some pushback. They don't love everything that they're hearing. You you get this grumbling description in verse 41, just talking about the crowd. Uh, The crowd's described as the Jews. That's who Jesus was talking to. It was just a group of of the Jewish people there. It says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. In verse 52, it says, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus is saying these things. People are struggling with it. They're wrestling with it. They're beginning to grumble about it. But now, what we see in verse 60 is that the grumbling isn't just out there in the crowd, but it begins to go in to his disciples. Now, do you see that in verse 60? When many of his disciples heard it. Now, when we think of the disciples, we think just of the 12. But we have to realize is there, were, there was this larger crowd and then another group called his disciples. These were just people who along the way had developed some sort of affection for him or they thought of themselves as following him or learning from him. That's what a disciple is, someone who's a follower or a learner. And they're distinguished, uh, what we see in later in the passage, from the 12. So there's the 12 disciples, that's what we usually think of, then the, this group of disciples, then the crowd. What's this group of disciples that begin to grumble? Verse 60, many of his disciples heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now that word hard is a word that means harsh or offensive. It doesn't mean complex or uh, hard to understand, right? This is not them going, you know, I didn't really get it. This is them saying, I didn't really like it. A lot of times, by the way, we say we don't get it when the reality is we don't like it. This is harsh. This is offensive. This is something I do not like. I have a problem with this is what they're saying. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The NIV says, who can accept it? Other translations talk about this. This is too tough to swallow. I don't know if I can be on board with this of Jesus. So the question is, well, what was so offensive? What was so harsh? What was it that these disciples had such a difficult time embracing? Well, we see four different reasons uh, throughout chapter 6. If you go back through chapter 6, you go, okay, here are the reasons why they found this to be offensive. The first one uh, was that Jesus rejects their political hopes. By the way, all four of these reasons we see in chapter 6 are alive and well today. Have you noticed that people today have an agenda for Jesus when it comes to politics? Well, that was true then. These Jews were under occupation from the, from the Romans. They were hoping for a Messiah who would come as a military figure, who would, who would make uh, the, the nation of Israel be able to be set free from the oppression. They were hoping that someone would come back and, and usher in a kind of political thing. And so when Jesus shows up, they're like, oh my goodness, this is the guy. If you have your Bible, scroll up to uh, verse 15. 
It says in verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's an amazing thing. He feeds all these people. He's going, my popularity is so high, they're about to come crown me king. I better get away from this. Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the military leader. You're going to conquer Rome. Yay. No, 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 no. Because Jesus rejects their political hopes. This hasn't gone away. There's lots of people who want to turn Jesus into their political puppet. The right and the left do this, right? Some people are like, well, obviously, obviously God is a Republican. I mean, look at what it says in Ecclesiastes 10.2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. See, there it is in the Bible. God's a Republican, clearly. I mean, there's just no doubt, right? Other people are like, no, 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 God's not a Republican. God's a Democrat. God's on the left because Jesus, he healed every disease and affliction, free health care for everyone. Obviously, Jesus is a Democrat. And we do this in all sorts of ways where we try to kind of shoehorn Jesus into what we really want, which is political power. But friends, we don't worship an elephant. We don't worship a donkey. We worship a lamb who died to change the world. I was having a conversation in uh, late November uh, with one of our pastors at uh, Redemption Gateway, who actually at one point was a pastor here. That's how he and I got to know each other. His name's Matthew Brazelton. And he and I were talking just about the, the kind of shift that it feels like needs to happen within the church. I don't mean just our church or Redemption Gilbert or Redemption Gateway or even Redemption Arizona, though it does, but just the church in general, the way we think about things. And it was such an interesting conversation. At the end of it, I said, Matthew, will you kind of type up what you were saying? Because I, I just, I want to be able to chew on it and reflect on it. And he did. And now I'm going to share it with you. Here's what he wrote to me. He said, I've been thinking about the shift the church needs to make in light of the current national moment. For a long time, American evangelicalism has viewed its fight for cultural reform through sanctified cultural means, politics, music, media, etc. We were culture warriors, a moral majority using our power and influence, tools of the world, to push the way of Jesus onto our culture. However, Jesus never modeled changing culture through power. Instead, he laid aside his power and came in weakness. He changed our world not by fighting culture with power, but by living a subversive counterculture of weakness, self-sacrifice, and love. Evangelicals now exist on the cultural margins. We've lost much of our power and direct influence. To pretend differently is foolish. If power is our only hope, then we have no choice but to form unholy alliances with other power structures in order to continue our misguided mission. However, if we see our mission not as changing the existing culture, but living in an entirely different counterculture, the kingdom of God, we can take a new path. We can live quietly and let love be our banner. We can do the Lord's work the Lord's way. Amen? I mean, isn't that what we want to be? And yet so often we get distracted. and We begin to think that it's our job to build the kingdom of power here. Jesus says, no, not interested in that, and they didn't like it. 
Well, there's a second reason we see in this text why these people are frustrated with Jesus. The second reason is that Jesus wants to meet more than just their physical needs. They've been following him around because he's the bread dispenser, right? He, he, he can do this. Look at what this guy can do. I mean, if I could just follow this guy, I, I'll never have to work another day again, and he can make it out of almost anything. This is incredible. Jesus calls him on this, of course, in verse 26. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs I did, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you're not impressed by the spiritual reality that this miracle is pointing to. You don't even care about that. You're just hungry. And Jesus is saying, I'm not not your vending machine. Do you have a vending machine, God? Or that's what you look to him for? God bless me. God give me what I want. God give me all the things I hope to have. Yeah, I could take or leave you. One of the most penetrating questions I was ever asked was actually in this room. Years ago, uh, Pastor John Piper from Minnesota was here. They, they, Desiring God, his ministry was hosting a conference here, and he did a men's night. And I remember that night he asked, I was sitting right back over there, and he asked this question. He said, what if you could have heaven? You could die right now and go to heaven, and it would have all the things you ever hoped would be in heaven. Incredible weather, beautiful streets of gold, the best food, the greatest drinks, reunited with your family, with friends, amazing golf courses, great shopping, but free. You know, everything you could ever want, and you could have that, but God wasn't there. Would you still want it? I remember sitting there thinking, I know the answer should be no. But if I'm honest, there's a little bit of me that goes, yeah, I'd be all right with that. And that's what Jesus is confronting. And here's the deal. If that's where you land, that you say, you know what, I want Jesus' stuff, I want Jesus' blessings, I want Jesus what he has to offer me, but I could take or leave him, eventually you're going to leave him, which is what these folks do. Right, this is what happens. God, I expect you to bless me. God, I expect you to give me this. God, I hope to have that. And then when your expectations are unmet, you say, well, God, how could you let me down? Don't you know how faithfully I served you? And here's the thing. You married God for his money. Jesus says, don't marry me for my money. Marry me for me. So that offended them. Here's the third reason they're offended is that Jesus claims to be more than their understanding of religion. They had an understanding of religion. It was all buttoned up. It was very clean. It was very tidy. And it was very much based on Moses. Moses was the hero. Moses was the lawgiver. And all the things connected to Moses made their their religion quite orderly and comfortable. Jesus confronts this in verse 32. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Right? They're under this impression, based off of all that Moses had done, that their job was to get to God by doing the things Moses encouraged. 
Keep the law, keep the sacrifices. The synagogue's important, the temple's important. Keep all this thing going. We gotta get to God. And, and he's saying, no, no, no. This was never about you getting to God. And this wasn't even about Moses. It was about God who worked through Moses to give you something pointing to me. And now, verse 33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They don't get it. They say, sir, give us this bread. Jesus says to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Your situation, he says, was so messed up, it was so dire, it was so hopeless, that God himself had to come. Maybe you have a understanding of religion that's about what you need to do for God and how you need to be a good person and how at least you need to be better than them, right? And even your understanding of church, like you come to church mostly looking for something that's encouraging, that's inspiring, that's motivating, so you can go out there and be a good person. That's false religion. Jesus didn't come to make you nice. He came to make you new, And he said, you only get new when you take me into yourself. And this is what is ultimately so offensive. Here's the fourth reason, is Jesus just seems too extreme. He seems too extreme. I mean, he's doing all this talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I think that's in particular what they're reacting to. Because in verse 60, they say, this is a hard saying. It's like, all this stuff's been hard, but this especially is just really difficult to, to embrace. I don't like this. This is offensive. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood? I mean, there was one thing the Jews were not to eat. It was anything with blood, but especially a person's blood? What? But what is Jesus talking about when he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood? Well, he's talking about faith in him. Let me show you two verses that are almost the exact same in structure. Uh, We'll put these on the screen and let you see these. In John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So believe in him. You'll have eternal life, be raised up at the last day. This next verse is going to finish the same way, but the first half's a little different. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. So Jesus is equating believing in him with eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So get this. Is Jesus advocating cannibalism? No. What about this? Is Jesus saying, you know what? If you have communion every week, If you have the Lord's Supper, if you take that wafer and you drink that wine or that juice, if you do that, you'll have eternal life. Is that what he's saying? We're a little less confident about that one because some of us grew up in a tradition where that was kind of what was taught or understood. But no, no, no. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to believe in me, but believing in me is so extreme that it's like taking me into yourself and eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Jesus is saying, I want you to find your nourishment in me. I want you to find your flavor in me. I want you to so depend on me that your source of strength and your source of energy and your source of life comes from me. I'm not looking to be an add-on. I'm not looking to be sprinkled in. I'm not looking to be your co-pilot. I'm looking to be your everything. That's extreme. 
And they say, it's too extreme. I don't like it. Notice, Jesus doesn't soften his message. He doesn't go, whoa, 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 you didn't understand. Oh, whoa, 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 wait. No, he goes, yeah, you, you understood. But you take offense. Verse 61, do you take offense at this, Jesus says? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, you saw one miracle, you saw another miracle. You're not, it's not about the miracles. You could see me ascend to heaven, which, by the way, he's going to do later on in this book, and you still won't believe. He says, verse 62, or verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. He says, verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Listen, some of you in this room, some of you watching online, you have this idea that, that your resistance to Jesus is intellectual. That if you could just see more proof, if you could just see more evidence, then you'd be a Christian. These people saw plenty of evidence. The reason we don't follow Jesus isn't ultimately an intellectual one. It's a will one. We don't want to follow him. That's what Jesus is saying. And I just love Jesus in this. Like as a leader, um, you know, of course, any, any leader is kind of going, hey, what's the pulse of the people that are following? And, and you have to do that as a leader. But I just love the conviction of this. Right? He's not taking a poll. He doesn't have his, you know, which way is the wind blowing today? He has conviction. This is who I am. And I want you to believe it, but if you won't believe it, you won't believe it. Which takes us to this devastating verse in verse 66. After this... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many turned back. Let me ask you, what would make you turn back? What would tempt you to turn your back on Jesus, to stop following Jesus? Because the reality is, we wish that this was the last time that happened, but it's not. If you've been around church, if you've been around Jesus for any period of time, you've experienced people who used to be all gung-ho, used to be all excited, used to be even involved in leading things, and now they don't even follow Jesus anymore. I'm not talking about leaving a local church. I'm talking about leaving Christ. What would tempt you to leave Christ? See, a lot of us have a kind of conditional trust in Jesus. If my life goes pretty well, if my kids stay healthy, if you answer this prayer. And when those things don't happen, sometimes we want to walk away. This is actually the verse that the Lord used to bring me to faith in Christ. So I was 17 years old, and I had been kind of attending church. There was a Bible study that I'd been part of with some friends who were a couple years older than me. Well, they'd gone off to college. It was my junior year in high school. And uh, up the street moved a 
moved in a guy that I started noticing around the neighborhood. He would go on jogs around the neighborhood, and he was real athletic and looked real strong. And one day he stopped by, and we had a little conversation. And it turned out he had played football at the University of Colorado. And so he was just a few years older than me. And so I, I was a high school athlete. So we had kind of a connection and started building a friendship. And, and at one point he said, hey, would you, uh, you want to just sit down with me and get together and read the Gospel of John? I said, sure, let's do it. We didn't have a workbook, no curriculum. I mean, all those things are great, but that's not what we have. We just read chapter one, talk about it. Meet again, read chapter two, talk about it. So we've been meeting for a month or so, and we get to chapter six. And he looked me in the eye, and he said what I, I imagine took a great deal of prayer and courage. He, he had to have known Either he knew going into the meeting he needed to say this, or the Spirit really put something on his heart in the moment. But we got to verse 66, and he said, Luke, I've gotten to know you. You're a nice kid. All your, all your parents, all your kids, or all your friends' parents, they like you. Like you your teachers like you. You're, 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 you're nice. But I just wonder if you would be one of the people that would walk away. Because it seems to me like you follow Jesus when it makes you look good, when it helps your reputation, when it helps your baseball. But I kind of think if push came to shove, you'd walk away. I was not happy <laughs> to hear that. I was offended. And I held it together and I was polite, but inside I was burning. How dare you? How dare you judge me? You don't even know me that well. How, how could you say that? But you know ultimately why I was so mad? Because he was right. And I knew he was right. And the Lord brought conviction to me. And it was over the following few weeks that I began to really just wrestle with Jesus and, and say, you know, Jesus, is this really true? Am I following you with an if kind of faith? rather than a sold-out kind of faith. And it was through those weeks, and I don't remember the exact day or the exact time, but I remember getting down on my face in my room and saying, Jesus, I'm all in no matter what. I want to be sold out for you. And I didn't for a minute at that point think that that would lead to being a pastor. I just wanted to be a full-time Jesus follower. Not when it was easy, not when it was convenient, but all the time. Ultimately, I came to the same conclusion that Peter came to, which is that Jesus is our only hope. He's hard to follow, but here's the second thing you gotta see. He's, he's our only hope. This is what happens. These people walk away. Jesus says to the 12, do you wanna go away as well? I love the security of Jesus in this question. This isn't Jesus going, oh, you guys aren't gonna leave too, are you?" This is Jesus going, hey, I've laid it out for you. What do you want to do? I think actually he gives this to them as a gift so that they realize they really do believe. Do you want to go away as well? And Peter, right, Simon Peter, he, he was, no one, no one nominated him, but he was the spokesman. He answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've come to believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? 
This is Peter saying, yeah, it's hard to follow you. Yeah, you're asking a lot, but where else am I going to go? I have no other hope. I have no other option. This makes me think of uh, my little guy, Hank. We've got, uh, we've got uh, four kids, three girls, and then a boy, uh, Henry. We call him Hank. He's four years old. And over the last uh, few years, uh, as you can imagine, when you're raising a, a kid, you know, toddler, now becoming a little boy, you've you got to disappoint him a lot. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I've noticed is that there's times when he'll ask me for something. Like, like not long ago, he was asking, Daddy, he was, he was so just heart set on it, Daddy, can we, can we get some ice cream? He really wanted it. And I said, nobody, we're not going to get ice cream. The lip pops out. The tears begin to fall. His world is falling apart. And then he did something amazing. He collapsed into my arms. And I held him. And I comforted him. And I thought, this is so interesting that the very person who disappointed him is also the only person in that moment who could really comfort him. And this is what Jesus is offering to you. Because you'll have moments of disappointment, not because he's not faithful, but because your expectations weren't his plan. And you'll feel disappointed and you'll feel crushed. And here's the thing, when your lip begins to stick out, as it were, when you begin to feel like your world's falling apart, not because you lost ice cream, but something much more significant, here's the deal, you will fall into the arms of something. Will you fall into the arms of a drink or a prescription that you no longer need or a relationship that isn't your spouse or the internet, or shopping, or indulging this habit, or eating, you'll go somewhere. And Jesus' invitation is to say, fall into my arms. Be, let me be your everything. Let me be your source. That's where they are. Where else are we going to go? Lord, this is hard. Lord, we know you're not going to give us everything we want all the time but you're our only hope. Why? Because you have the words of eternal life. You speak. All throughout this book, we're gonna see people go, no one talks like this guy. There's nobody like him. And he says, we've come to know that you are the holy one of God. That, That phrase is significant because the word holy means unique. There's no one like him. Holy is set apart. Holy is lifted high. Holy is on its own. Holy is altogether separate from anything sinful. And so they're going, listen, Jesus, you make life really uncomfortable for us, but you're the only place to go. And it's amazing that this is the Holy One who we're told twice in this passage in verse 64 and in verse 60 or 71, we're told that this holy one of Israel, this holy one of God, will be betrayed. And John begins to leave some breadcrumbs here, pointing to the fact that the source of life will lay down his life so that we who reject him can have life. When we turn to him, when we feed on him, when we trust him, when we fall in his arms. 
So this is the question today for you, for you watching online. This is the question. It's the same question JR asked me. Will you follow Jesus only because it's convenient? Will you use Jesus to get what you really want? Political things, physical things, a nice reputation, a little bit more success. Will you use Jesus to get what you really want or will you go to Jesus empty-handed, fall into his arms and say, I have no hope but you? That's the invitation of Christ. That's the offer of Jesus. For those of you who've never trusted him before and for those of you who've walked with him for decades, the offer is to come. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come and he will give you rest. Fall into his arms. He is the bread of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a gift Christ is. What a blessing it is to know him. God, thank you that there's no one who spoke like this man. Thank you that there's no one who lived like this man. And thank you for the way that your spirit opens our hearts to receive him and to see him as the treasure that he is. God, thank you for what you did in my heart. Thank you for J.R., for his courage to say a difficult word that I needed to hear. And God, if there's any for whom today is a difficult word, I pray that they'd go through the same experience that I did, that you would wrestle with them and that you would bring them to a point of surrender where they would find that all of you is enough for all of them. More than all we want, more than all we need, you're more than enough. God, we thank you for that. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, listen, before we leave, I want to um, just bring you into a little tradition we do at Redemption Gateway and uh, send you out with a benediction. So if you're uh, willing and able, would you please stand as I bless you with this word as we go. Go in peace to love and serve with full confidence that Jesus is enough. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a good week.